0: This program deals with devil worship and satanic beliefs. It contains explicit scenes and descriptions of violent crimes and rituals.
1: Americans are asking,
0: mm-hmm. who attacked our country? Mm-hmm. The United States, can you tell us why? Everything pertaining to what's happening has never come to the surface. The world will never know the true facts of what occurred, my motive. The night fell on a different world. And if is thinking, you know... I should be getting this position, not Adam, and this guy is created from dirt. And how does the army feel about you being head of the temple of Seth? And the conspiracy theorists can say what they will. But I want you to give me power over Adam. And I want you to give me soldiers and minions and all of these things.
1: The people that have so much to gain and have such a material motive for putting a
0: position on in will never let the truth back come about more to the world. And I want you to be able to give me the ability to whisper into the hearts of mankind. And uh, who was the grotto leader? I don't remember his name. You don't remember the name of a person who involved you in murder? Are these people in a very high positions, Yes. Yeah.
1: One thing I wanted to read from is Ottoman Brothers by Michelle Campos. I think I mentioned this text a little bit last time. Um, and even talk about the sort of phenomenon of Ottomanism versus Zionism. I think she has some good portions about that, but, you know, this book is really about the uh, potential of uh, an Ottoman identity in the wake of the Young Turk Revolution, where there would be a concept of uh, sort of uh, fellow feeling and uh, community based on uh, an Ottoman identity, rather than uh, ethnic or national identities uh, for Arab, Jew, or that there could be some kind of uh, shared uh, community or shared identity based on that. Uh, obviously, it didn't go that way because the Ottoman Empire uh, was, uh, you know, no longer exists and yep. uh, you know, was uh, pulled apart uh, at the end of World War I. And also we had the rise of, you know, ideologies like Zionism. But during the same time that you had like someone like Theodore Herzl going around uh, propounding Zionism and there were a lot of people who were promoting this sort of idea of a Jewish like national home in Palestine. Herzl being probably the most like extreme example of uh, Zionism on the on the model that we, we know it now or promoting Zionism on the model we know it now. Uh, There were actually a lot of alternatives. So uh, she talks about that a lot, but one uh, thing I also wanted to touch on was uh, this section where she talks about like the popularity of, of Freemasonry in mm-hmm. uh, the Ottoman world uh, during uh, this time in the late 19th century, in particular. Uh, yeah. I just think this is interesting, you know, given like uh, some other topics we've talked about on SJ before, and yeah. it's definitely true. Like, I mean, of course, like secret societies are popular everywhere, but uh, Turkey is is certainly known, and especially this is really like a pivotal time in uh the development of like the turkish deep state uh for which you know turkey is 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 known right the, they really are the the term like deep state i think was originally coined uh to talk about turkey right the idea of applying was, this yeah. other contexts came about later um and certainly it was like the parties like the cup which we just mentioned that deposed the ottoman sultan which kind of uh uh, form the original uh, deep state like those sort of committees and, and organizations within the Turkish state where, uh, you know, the original sort of deep state organizations, but this kind of gets into the aspect of, of, of the appeal of secret societies, um, or of Freemasonry in particular, which I think has some some parallel with that. Uh, interest in in secret societies or secret groups as a a governing model. She writes, From the mid-19th century, Freemasonry provided a fertile philosophical and organizational ground for Ottoman liberal thinkers and reformers. Incorporating a belief in a supreme being, secretive rituals, and modern enlightenment ideals, Freemasonry offered its members a progressive philosophical and social outlook, an important economic and social network, ties to the West, and a potential arm for political organizing. According to one historian of Ottoman Masonry, by the end of the 19th century, there was hardly a city or a town of importance without at least one lodge. Wow. While the British model of Freemasonry was more conservative in and generally was supportive of the religious and political status quo, the French tradition of Freemasonry, which became more prominent throughout the Middle East, emphasized liberal, philosophical positions that encouraged political engagement and critique, including support for revolution. In Egypt, Freemasonry provided an outlet for political and social organization in the aftermath of British colonization, and Masons played a prominent role in the 1882 Urabi Revolution. Indeed, prominent Islamic anti-colonial activist Jamal al-Din al consciously linked a desired political reform with his Masonic activities. Yeah, he was a big uh, proponent of Masonry. The first thing that enticed me to work in the building of the Free was a solemn, impressive slogan, Liberty, Equality, Fraternity whose objective seemed to be the good of mankind, the demolition of the edifices, and the erection of the monuments of absolute justice. Hence, I took Freemasonry to mean a drive for work, self-respect, and disdain for life and the cause of fighting injustice. We recall, of course, that al-Afghani had numerous protégés and disciples throughout the Ottoman world, especially in Istanbul and Cairo. And as a result, Freemasonry emerged to be one of the most important organizations during the Hamidian period. A number of leading young Turks were uh, active Masons before 1908, possibly because of the immunity from police scrutiny that foreign lodges offered. After 1908, far from its origins as a closeted secret society pursued by the state and its secret police, Freemasonry was legitimized and institutionalized as part of the new sociopolitical order. In 1909, the long-defunct Supreme Council of the Scottish Rite of Masonry within the Ottoman Empire was reconstituted under the leadership of Minister of Finance Bey, Javid Bey, MP Emmanuel Cassaro, uh, MP Dr. Riza Tavfik, uh, and other luminaries of the CUP. Also that year, the Grand Orient Ottoman, sometimes called the Grand Orient de la Turquie, was established as uh, the umbrella mother lodge of the empire, An Ottoman Minister of the Interior Talat Pasha was elected Grand Master in establishing the goo its leadership sought to establish an autonomous masonry and the spirit of political and national emancipation as well as to form a core of constitutional liberals who would be able to stand up to the reactionaries still found throughout the empire with this kind of institutional support it is no wonder that freemasonry flourished openly in the empire in the revolutionary era between 1909 and 1910 at least seven new lodges were established or old ones revived from dormancy in istanbul alone most of them had names that linked them to the new spirit of liberty and progress: le vrai amis de l'union et progrès, le veritas, la patrie, la renaissance, chefac l'erreur. In Salonica, Masonic lodges multiplied so much; another historian has characterized it as proliferation that was likely to emerge shortly in a true Masonic colonization of the Ottoman Empire. In Jaffa, the existing lodge, Barkai exploded numerically, and the following years, several new lodges were established in Jaffa and Jerusalem. As a stark illustration of the rapid growth of Freemasonry in Palestine, in contrast to the 57 known Palestinian Masons who were active in the 17 years before the July 1908 revolution, in the seven years after it, another 131 young men were initiated as Masons. Surely at least some of the men, newly drawn to Freemasonry, joined out of philosophical affinity. One surviving application for admission to a Beirut Masonic Lodge describes the aspirant's motivation precisely in this way. The Freemasonry Order is an order that has rendered great services to humanity throughout the centuries and always raised high the banner of equality, fraternity, and liberty. It is an order that seeks to bring together mankind and to better it. I would also like to be part of such an order and to take part in benevolence and the useful works of your order. And then you talk about the catechism of Freemasonry, you know, uh-huh. what is a Freemasonry? A free man of good qualities who prefers above all justice and truth. What is Freemasonry? Freemasonry is an institution whose aim is to establish justice and humanity and for brotherhood to reign. Why do I desire to be a Freemason? Because I am in darkness and I desire enlightenment,
0: <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, so... Freemasons at it again. Wow. Yes. They really uh, are the vanguard party of something. I don't know if it's of liberal bourgeois order. They are like the vanguards.
1: Yeah, I mean, really. I guess that, like, these lodges had, like, their own character and, like, it actually varied, like, among uh, lodges and it changed over time right so it says uh it talks a little about the demographics in these lodges right beyond serving as a neutral meeting ground for members of different religions masonic lodges also served as vehicles for internal solidarity and social cohesion across various middle strata and elite groups by and large the lodges not attract the older established leaders of each community but the new generation on the rise most palestinian freemasons in this period joined in their mid-20s to mid-30s although they were sometimes younger especially with family legacies and sometimes older These were the same men who supported the CUP, or later, the various uh, decentralization and nationalist parties. Uh, The members of the Palestinian Masonic Lodges were largely of the newly mobile middle classes of the liberal professions, as well as younger members of the traditional notable families. Fully one fourth were government employees 15 lawyers and judges, 17 administrative officials of both the provincial and municipal levels, and a dozen members of both the military and the police. Another third worked in commerce banking, and accounting. The rest of the members were teachers, doctors, pharmacists, lawyers, and white-collar clerks. Uh, he talks about some uh, notable Muslim masons, uh, members of the Arafat, Abu Ghazala, Abu Khadra, no, Abu oh, yeah. Arafat. He's no, interesting. Uh, the Johnny. yeah, Khalidi, mm-hmm. Khalidi? Khalidi, yes. Oh my And God. Well, you know, these are big families. That were these are big families. So, I mean, yeah.
0: everybody who was anybody was a Mason. At, yeah, you know, I feel like around this period of time. I mean, also the you know just like the place where you know Lincoln almost went California was also like completely like exploding with Freemasonry in this time. You know, yeah. like Michael Aquino's grandfather was in three lodges in San Francisco. Damn. etc. cetera. Uh, yeah, so, well, the more
1: California-Palestine uh, comparisons, yeah. Yeah, so there is a certain degree of what one scholar has called the democratic sociability of the free masonry movement. The radical innovation of a single organization that would voluntarily encompass and equalize Khalidis and Nashabis, as well as uh, Burkushis, Mannis and other young men from less illustrious families cannot be overlooked. At the same time, however, Freemasonry had the effect of reaffirming class lines. These men shared similar modes of modern education exposure to foreign languages and Western ideas and a relatively high level of economic independence and a growing social-political weight in their province and the empire as a whole. So eventually, like, the sort of uh, tensions among groups started to come out here. You know, uh, there's—it talks about inter-Masonic commercial relationships, different— you know, there is one incident of uh, Masonic treason— uh, that rocked oh. Palestinian Freemasonry. An Italian doctor named Salvador Garcia had penetrated the Moria Masonic lodge in Jerusalem and reported its activities both to the anti-Masonic French consul and to the heads of various religious communities. As a result so did, of the ex- like a James O'Keefe video, or yeah, like- basically, yeah. Uh, as a result of the expose, seven or eight members faced complete ruin. This context of religious persecution of masons as well as the loss of the Barkai Lodge archives during World War I make it difficult to retrace the full scope of Masonic activities in the late Ottoman world. Nonetheless, we do know that the Palestinian Lodge's regular activities focus on philanthropy, mutual aid, and lay education. Lodge banquets were held to raise funds for the Ottoman army's winter clothing drive, for example. In two cases of wrongful dismissal of masons from the Jaffa Jerusalem Railroad, and the uh, Messagerie's Maritimes of the Jaffa Port, the G.O.D.F. in Paris refused to intervene on the pretext that the economic importance of Jaffa to France overruled brotherly obligations. Interesting. Mm. You know we can only wonder at what sort of masonic activity was implied when members spoke of their missionary-like activities of contributing to the diffusion of masonic ideas in this ottoman empire which is our fatherland which greatly needs to take as a starting point our motto to ensure the well-being of its children in this context barkai requested that it be allowed to affiliate itself with the grand orient ottoman in order to coordinate masonic activities empire-wide the godf did establish fraternal relations with the goo And authorizes members to fraternize with the Ottoman organization as a result. So international Masonic Solidarity. As a result, in June 1910, several members of the Barcai Lodge decided to revive the defunct Temple of Solomon Lodge in Jerusalem under the aegis of the G.O.O. Eventually, 22 members of the Barcai joined the new G.O.O. Lodge. Within a couple of years, however, the Temple of Solomon would undergo an internal split that divided Palestinian Freemasonry along political and sectarian lines. So this is pretty interesting here. Virtually nothing is known of the Temple of Solomon Lodge until March 1913, when a faction of the lodge broke off and formed its own provisional lodge, demanding, quote, symbolic and constitutional acceptance by the G.O.D.F., The new lodge, named Moria, immediately requested catechism books, proposed a lodge seal, began searching for a garden as a lodge headquarters, and set strict guidelines for admission to the lodge. Only those with irreproachable reputations and decent French need apply. According to its new venerable, the task of the Masons of Moria was to be to defend the ideals of freedom and justice, particularly in Jerusalem, where clericalism and fanaticism were strongly against Masonic work. Avraham Abu Shadid, newly elected speaker to the Lodge, urged his fellow Masons to ensure that mutual tolerance, respect of others and yourself, and absolute freedom of conscience are not words in vain. According to Abu Shadid, in the East, the word freedom is replaced by servility and fanaticism, while equality and fraternity are vocabulary replaced by synonyms of superstition and hypocrisy. Through their Masonic mission, Abu Shadid envisioned a renaissance of the Ottoman people, this new star, which comes from our east, continues to shine with an increasingly sharp glare, and our path is clear. The day will come when its luminous clarity will disperse all darkness, and the base of this shaking humanity will collapse. And one will see then all the nations, all the races, all the religions will be erased and disappear, and to take make place for a rising generation, young people, free, fraternizing and sacrificing a whole glorious past, a whole for a new era of peace, truth, and justice. However. Despite this claim of erasing lines between peoples, the split within the Temple of Solomon Lodge had been a cultural and political one between two separate factions, one Arabic-speaking, largely Muslim and Christian, and the other French-speaking, largely Jewish and foreign. Of the eight known Temple of Solomon members who defected to form Moria, five of them were Jewish, one Christian, and two were foreign Frenchmen. If before the split, Temple of Solomon had been a relatively mixed lodge with 40% Muslim, 33% Jewish, and 18.5% Christian members, post-split Moria had only one Muslim member. The natives of Temple of Solomon accused the foreigners of being, among other things, Zionists, while they were accused in turn of being quote-unquote xenophobes. In the face of this growing schism between Freemasons in Jerusalem, the Temple of Solomon requested that the Jaffa-based lodge, Barcai, appeal to the GODF to deny Moria's request for recognition. According to Barcai venerable Sesa Arachtigini, Araktinji, the presence of two competing Masonic lodges in Jerusalem would cause discord. His de- request was politely denied by the GODF, which had long wanted a lodge in Jerusalem. Tell our Freemason brothers of the Lodge of the Temple of Solomon that they should not look at Moria as a rival lodge, but rather a new hearth, working also to realize our ideas of justice and brotherhood. Not to be dissuaded, Arrakhtinji again appealed to the G.O.D.F., stating that the founders of Moria had acted improperly in founding a lodge on their own. He also asserted that language problems had been one of the catalysts of the defection, since many of the Temple of Solomon members did not know French, and several of the defectors apparently did not know Arabic. Furthermore, most of the Temple of Solomon members had been initiated under the G.O.D.F. order through Barcai, and as a result, the G.O.D.F. owed them special consideration. Finally, according to Araktingi, the main instigator of the defections, the French banker Henri uh, Frigier, had promoted personal animosity among Jerusalem's Freemasons, and in order to mend the growing rifts in Palestinian Freemasonry, Araktingi demanded that he be transferred elsewhere in the empire. Yeah, so in their defense, the founders of the Moria Lodge wrote again to the G.O.D.F., this time indicating not only the members of the Temple of Solomon from whom they split, or sorry, indicting them, but also the Jaffa-based Lodge Barkai and all, quote-unquote, indigenous Freemasons. According to Moria, the indigenous Turkish and Arab element is still unable to understand and appreciate the superior principles of Masonry, and in consequence of practicing them. For the majority, Freemasonry is probably only an instrument of protection and occult recommendation. Uh, The author puts in a question mark in brackets there, like, what is a cult recommendation? But (laughs) apparently that's what. And for others, an instrument of local and political influence. The work of the lodges consists primarily of illegible texts and recommendations. Yeah, not always, unfortunately, for just causes and in favor of innocent Freemasons. The rest does not exist and cannot exist because the indigenous know only despotism, from which they suffer for long centuries, and their instruction is very underdeveloped. And is not prepared to work with the disinterested aim for humanity and justice. So why do I get
0: such bad vibes like hearing Freemasons just talk about our centuries-long global plan for like human <laughs> justice? <laughs> and it's like um ever uh, elaborate like what the plan really is. I
1: mean, yeah.
0: <laughs> globalist, uh, it's yeah, it's like, pretty like, sus it feels- that
1: like a bunch of literal globalists were like in a like an actual Masonic Brotherhood with kind of like a model of like you know living together like different religions you know people from different like backgrounds even different languages and then yeah. they're like we gotta split off because they yeah, can't like no. they you know they, oh, like, you know they couldn't understand like that you know they couldn't understand like, what masonry is all about you know they didn't understand like, they, the
0: superior values of yeah scenery, which only exactly the they can't
1: work with a disinterested aim for humanity it's like what does that mean what does it mean? A disinterested aim? Like it means they need to put aside their own lives? Like what? You know, like, like what is what? Yeah. So or um, you know,
0: do something against their own interest. They, they were fully yeah, down it, with perhaps the plan of uh, the, yeah. the Masonic plan that was being. It makes me up.
1: wonder if like the French uh, speaking, mostly Jewish, you know, split off from the uh, the first Temple of Solomon. Like maybe if the accusation that they were Zionists might have uh been accurate i don't know like well, uh... i
0: i do recall i don't i think i failed to mention it last time but i do believe that moses montefiore was a uh you know who was one of the first financial backers of jewish settlements in palestine i believe he was a very prominent freemason you know mm-hmm. as i'm sure most of the people i don't know about the other big you know uh, silk topper backers of settlements the Rothschilds but they're almost on their own level like I'm sure they were Freemasons though I have to see exactly what lodge but they were financial backers of it and so especially are we talking about like the turn of the century when these splits were happening
1: yeah this is basically like you know 19 I think this is actually even later I think this is 1913 yeah so, so I, yeah. I it
0: actually wouldn't be surprising at all if like they you know yeah these French speaking uh Freemasons were connected to like the Rothschilds or other, you know, whatever and were pursuing a Zionist project. Not yes. too shocking. But you see even the rift of the conflict, you know, starts in the lodge first and then trickles down everywhere else.
1: Yes, and this and that definitely came to to a head like even, you know, later on. Let me see. Uh what's the best part here to read? It talks about like how that quote obviously was uh was racist while proposing universalism on one hand masonic lodges in practice espanned a very eurocentric and in the case of the GDF uh GODF francophone view of the modern liberal man the irony of course is that only ottomans who were already exposed to and open to european language ideology or manners sought out membership in european lodges members of a certain class and cultural milieu sought fraternity and legitimacy in this very european institution precisely because of it all of all it represented cosmopolitanism cosmopolitanism liberalism modernity acculturation to a changed global setting regardless of whether or not they already were all these things ottoman masons certainly aspired to be them Yet, revealing an inherent tension in the modernizing class's orientation toward Europe, the core indigenous Temple of Solomon Lodge members were suspicious of the two Frenchmen and their influence over the other defectors. Frigier reported that the Temple of Solomon leadership persuaded the other Freemasons that our lodge, Moria, was created with the aim of facilitating the descent of the French into Palestine, and other stupid stories, which can appear ridiculous by far, but which were not, considering the particular situation of Turkey, without a rather pressing danger. Of course, during this period, the Ottoman Empire had recently fought several wars, one against Italy over its annexation of an Ottoman province, Libya, and the other against Greece and Bulgaria over the Ottoman regions of the Balkans, both of which it lost. Furthermore, long-standing local resentments against the privileges accorded foreigners in the empire under the capitulations, as well as the arrogance of European consuls who repeatedly demanded passing warships to intimidate and control the local population, also weighed into the equation. As a result, anti-European suspicions and sentiment were understandably running particularly high. Interestingly, the next year the local mason's depiction of the split had changed slightly. Barkhai Venerable Araktingi wrote to the G O D F, complaining that the Moria Lodge had been based on a failed bid for leadership of the Temple of Solomon Lodge, in other words, a petty personal political struggle, and that moreover it harbored Zionists, a fact that uh, which had hardened the position of its ex- external opponents and brought about its own internal critics. We have gone twice to Jerusalem to appease the hatred and reconcile the brother members of both lodges, and we have succeeded only slightly. Our brothers in Jerusalem are the high functionaries of the government. They are notables, though well-educated non-fanatics, who fear being viewed derisively in the eyes of their compatriots, and, therefore, prefer to move away from their Freemason brothers, the Zionists. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. Right. Yeah, he also write the balance at the time of the elections uh, will be right, and our brother Zionists will be more useful in secrecy and more content through the majority of the lodge. Sorry, though the majority of the lodge would be notable natives and senior officials of the government. At least the name of the lodge ceases being a Zionist lodge, and we were respected more in the eyes of the population of Jerusalem. Mm. Well, yeah, but I guess they got that reputation. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, and just to you know, just to confirm here. Uh yeah, not only is the Rothschild family uh, uh, fond of Freemasonry, but they founded several uh, Freemasonic lodges on various wealthy estates that they owned, which are still active today. Uh, the mm. Ferdinand de Rothschild and Concordia lodges, which I think were both consecrated in the eighteen early 1890s. Mm. So, yeah, I'd say... And, you know, uh, Edmund de Rothschild was from the French branch of the family. So, you know... yeah. You know. Interesting. Well, um, yeah,
1: it makes sense. But yeah, the this author addresses um, the issue of like Zionism versus like you know Ottomanism more directly in this uh, chapter uh, called "Ottomans of the Mosaic Faith." It starts off in the winter of 1910, the Salonican Judeo-Spanish newspaper La Tribuna Libera published a plebiscite in which uh, it asked its readers where the future of Ottoman Jewry lay, assimilation, nationalism, or Zionism. The paper's appeal was an effort to settle the battle that had raged in the Judeo-Spanish press in the preceding 18 months over the growing clash between Ottomanism and Zionism. According to the paper, the situation was bordering on fratricide and threatening to engulf Ottoman Jewry entirely. Yeah, so in the years between 1908 uh, revolution and World War I, the Jewish communities of the Ottoman Empire were on the brink of a real communal crisis. For one, questions over changing communal leadership led to a series of power struggles in cities all over the empire, from the capital in Istanbul, to symbolically important Jerusalem, to even relatively small Jewish communities such as Tiberias and Beirut. These power struggles centered on issues related to the modernization of Ottoman Jewry in favor of a younger generation of reformists, rabbis, who were considered reflective of the times as well as more accountable to their flocks. So, you know, and then they also had to deal with, like, what their role would be in, like, a reformed Ottoman Empire, right? On one hand, Ottoman Jews sought to seek a claim in the new Ottoman body politic, embracing the ideological aims of the revolution and seizing the tools of Ottoman citizenship. And yet this period also coincided with the community's progressive exposure to and reception of the ideas and institutions of European Zionism. So, yeah, many considered Zionism a betrayal of the beloved Ottoman homeland, particularly unjustifiable coming on the heels of civic enfranchisement and the optimistic new dawn promised by the revolution. Others, whoever saw Zionism both as a legitimate expression of Jews' collective cultural aspirations and as a fortuitous boon that would bring tremendous economic and social utility to their beloved empire, consciously divorcing their adoption of Zionism from the territorial political aspiration of the European Zionist movement. That's an important point. Like, first of all, not all Jews in the Ottoman Empire, or even in Europe, were Zionists. And... Yeah. not all Zionists or, like, self-identified Zionists were, like, Herzl-type Zionists or, like, had something in mind like what eventually became realized in 1948. It, yeah, yeah. We had,
0: I think we, we had already mentioned uh, Ginsburg. I'm forgetting his uh, pseudonym. The one who was, like, a cultural Zionist who actually broke from Herzl and, like, the political Zionists after visiting Palestine and looking at, like, the way the situation was and and decided that, you know, he still remained, like, a Zionist, but he didn't believe in the settlement. Though I think maybe he had, like, come around by his, like, older years when, like, after the Balfour Declaration. But for the most part, he's kind of emblematic of somebody who could be, like, a Jewish Zionist and also be, like, settling in Palestine for a variety of reasons is not the way uh to do it right
1: yeah and i mean there were a lot of like things uh like that but this is a, an interesting... yeah. asher
0: ginsburg ahad Ham, was the one i was mm-hmm. talking about who right. criticized yeah. the zionist settlements basically is like just these subsidized basically subsidized by edmund rothschild kind of weird settlements that you know he predicted Because as he uh, accurately pointed out, there are people already living there that you're basically going to engender like massive, you know, negative uh, sentiment around the world, you know, probably against all Jews and also like the people on the land are going to not forgive you for uh, if you steal it. And, you know, that's it would be a calamity, essentially. And also, like, it's not the amount of, you know, money and effort you'd have to sort of pour into Palestine to sort of make it into what people like Herzl wanted to make it into, he saw as just like a fool's errand. So anyways, yeah.
1: Yeah, this is a section on the Zionist critique of Ottomanism. So at least this, I mean, this tendency was pronounced enough. I mean, she talks about a lot of like examples of this, you know, organizations that were founded to promote Ottomanism among Jews, right? To encourage Jews, you know, uh, Yitzhak Levy. Argued in the aftermath of the revolution, we are all citizens of the Ottoman nation and it is incumbent upon us to break out of our special associations. He called on all Jews to learn Ottoman Turkish and Arabic and to participate fully in Ottoman Palestinian public life. Similar faith in the future of Ottomanism was expressed by Levi's political rival and fellow Jewish communal leader Albert Antebi, although not utopian Antebi, clearly understood the transformative and modernizing potential of the revolution. We are on a great journey to transform the entire social life of degenerate and impressed people and to unify all these heterogeneous nations, which to date have been driven by confessional beliefs made to divide and not unite. Freedom will undergo convulsions. Equality will suffer crises. We will have um, Muslim parliament, moderate, reactionary, perhaps we will preserve our constitution. So yeah, there's a lot of organizations like that. But this section about the Zionist critique of Ottomanism and their anxiety about it is interesting. The sincere pro-Ottomanist expressions and active participation of the empire's leading Sephardim posed a worrisome development to both officials and quote-unquote civilian ideologues of the Zionist movement. According to Dr. Arthur Rupin, the local representative of the Zionist organization who headed the Palestine office in Jaffa, the Sephardi Jews were not expressing sufficient Zionist fervor in the public demonstrations in the weeks after the revolution, but rather were acting as Ottoman citizens of the Mosaic faith. In fact, Rupin claims several Sephardi community leaders prevented Zionist symbols from being displayed, and one Zionist newspaper complained that they went so far as to tear a Zionist flag from the hands of a parade participant. In the eyes of the Zionist movement, the assimilationist tendencies of Ottoman Jewry should be blamed on the alliance uh, Israelite Universelle, the French philanthropic society that established a network of schools throughout the Middle East in the 19th century with the aim of quote-unquote civilizing Middle Eastern Jewry. Though the IAU's vocational, uh, through the IAU's vocational and primary schools, it had imparted a francophone cultural outlook at the same time that its philosophy was to keep Ottoman Jewry squarely rooted in their homeland. The official Zionist organ, in Hebrew, uh, Ha'olam, warned about the voices of Ottoman assimilationists who could have potentially dire consequences for the Zionist movement. They are saying what is familiar to us. Zionism is a betrayal of your homeland. The Ashkenazi Zionists are the foreigners, and we are true to our homeland and empire. The official worry about the political preferences of Ottoman Sephardim was magnified along the radical elements of the Russian Socialist Zionists, newly arrived in Palestine. This is interesting. Mm-hmm. Their yeah. newspaper, The Young Worker, published a blistering public attack against Yitzhak Levy and his expressions of Ottomanism. Yosef uh, Nowitz, the editor, derided Levy's Ottomanism, expressing deep concern that a Zionist official's own Zionism was in doubt. Levy's sins in their eyes were numerous. First, Levy had made a distinction within this Jewish community between Ottomans and foreigners. Most disturbing to the young worker, however, was the fact that in his speech, Levy had claimed that a new nation, Uma, had been born in Turkey, uh, the Ottoman nation, and we are all sons of the same nation. We are the Jews, he reportedly said. I'm sorry, we the Jews, he reportedly said. Must leave behind our sectarianism. There is no difference between Jew, Christian, and Muslim. And yet, as the editor noted, Levy's own campaign to be elected the Ottoman uh, to the Ottoman parliament was inconsistent with his ideology. If we are all part of the great Ottoman nation, quote-unquote, uh, Aronowitz challenged, why was there a need for a specifically Jewish representative in the Ottoman parliament? The conflict between Levy and Aronowitz captured in microcosm the conflict between differing visions of Ottoman public life and its relationship to Jewish communal life in Palestine. For Aronowitz and the Zionist radicals of the self-proclaimed New Yeshuv, Participation in the new Ottoman political system was a good strategy, but it was devoid of the inherent value it had for Ottomanist Jews in Palestine. For these instrumentalists, participation in imperial public life was desirable only in as much as it would allow Palestinian Jews to push for Zionist separatist aims. Unlike earlier Jewish immigrants, these newcomers rarely took upon themselves Ottoman citizenship, and their outlook toward Jewish nationalism and Zionism was rather dogmatic. In, so- in short, they denounced ideological Ottomanism and derided the feelings of brotherhood born of the revolution as one sided efforts of the Jews, as they saw it a tendency to be more Marxist than Marx. <laughs> However, These newly arrived immigrants, who numbered less than several thousand of Palestine's approximately 50,000 to 70,000 Jews, by no means represented the entire Zionist community. On the contrary, they represented a small faction even within the Palestinian Zionist settlers, a point the anonymous correspondent Jaffen Yafoni made in the official Zionist newspaper The Globe, Ya The young worker wants to present the truth from Eretz Israel, but instead it presents the truth as it sees it or rather as it wants it to be, Yafoni complained, highlighting the paper's advocacy of quote-unquote radical views on Hebrew labor. Despite their minority status back then, the voices of the young worker have been magnified in retrospect because of the leading role that the socialist Zionist parties took in the history of quote-unquote post-Ottoman, pre-state Palestine, and later in the leadership of the state of Israel. Mm -hmm. Other Ashkenazi Zionist immigrants had a different orientation to the Ottoman state and their role in it. Uh, Eliezer Ben Yehuda, a Russian uh, Jew who had immigrated to Palestine in the early 1880s and would be known as the father of modern Hebrew for his linguistic contributions, exhorted his fellow Ashkenazi immigrants to take on Ottoman citizenship. As he urged readers in his newspapers, The Deer and The Observation, Jews, be Ottomans! This call was echoed by David Yellen, whose father had been a member of the Jerusalem City Council in the second half of the 19th century. We the Jews can enjoy this freedom like the other citizens, and we need to do this, Every single person will be an Ottoman citizen and will encourage others to be Ottomans as well. Ben Yehuda and his son Itamar Ben Avi welcomed the revolution and reform as critical for the development of the empire as a multi-ethnic and modern entity, strengthened by its diversity if held together by overarching civic bonds. As Jews, the civic identity which they understood as central to the revolution was the very thing which enabled them to feel a part of the changes taking place. Turkey is an empire made of many peoples. Every people in Turkey preserves its peoplehood, amamut speaks its language, knows its culture and nationality that is special to him. But despite that, we all, according to the basic constitution, are Ottomans, sons of one state, equal all of us in the responsibilities and rights in civic and public life. The basic constitution does not demand from anyone to give up his private peoplehood, his personal culture or language, but all of us together must from now on participate in the general feeling, the general good of the state for everyone together, and all work together in peace and quiet for the general good of the state. Rather than an expression of assimilation, however, Ben Yehuda explained that this commitment to imperial citizenship allowed him to live out his Hebrew nationalism. Mm. But what is the meaning of the term Ottoman? It is not the name of a nationality, nor of a race, nor of a people in the natural meaning of the word. Ottoman isn't a synonym for Turk? No, God forbid. It is a political term, no more. So the phrase Jews be Ottomans does not mean Jews be Turks or Jews be Arabs. In Hebrew, the meaning is thus, Jews, be citizens of the state you live in. Jews, enjoy the political rights of the land of freedom in which you live and in which you wish to live uh, national Hebrew lives without giving up anything of your nationalism. Jews, be like the Arabs, like the Greeks, like the Armenians in the Ottoman Empire. Speak Hebrew, but be citizens of the Ottoman Empire in order that you can be Hebrews in the land of your fathers. Ben Yehuda's attitude was not a radical position, for even before the institutionalization of the Zionist movement, early Zionist settlers were encouraged to take on Ottoman citizenship. This was an outcome of Ottoman government policies which did not favor the settlement of foreign citizens who would push for special privileges and rights accorded to other foreigners under the capitulation system. As a result, the colonists on the early agricultural colonies, uh, Moshe were required by the sponsoring philanthropist Baron Edmund de Rothschild and his administrators to adopt Ottoman citizenship. After the failure of Jews to elect a candidate or otherwise influenced the course of parliamentary elections in the fall of 1908, Rupin, the leading Zionist official in Palestine, also adopted the position that Zionist immigrants should take Ottoman citizenship. Indeed, from the early months after the reinstatement of the Ottoman Constitution in July 1908, the Zionist movement in Europe placed increased importance on the Ottoman Empire— First as the object of their diplomatic efforts to secure eventual Jewish autonomy, and a distant second as a site of Zionist education and mobilization among Jewish communities in the empire. In 1908, the ZO established an official office in Istanbul under the management of Victor Jacobson, with the aim of lobbying the Ottoman government and overseeing Zionist mobilization throughout the empire. In both respects, the movement was to make some minor advances, but its overall failures either to win over the government or to mobilize the masses to the Zionist program by the Evo World War I were intimately related. From the outset, the Hamidian government had been suspicious of the Zionist movement and its intentions toward the territorial integrity of the Ottoman Empire, and rightly so. The Zionist movement operated under the premise that it would seek a charter from the Ottoman Sultan for Jewish Autonomy in Palestine, known as the Basil Program. The last Hamidian governor of Jerusalem, Ekrem Bey, who left Jerusalem in August 1908, had written to the capital that the Russian Jewish immigrants in Palestine were a quote-unquote dangerous element, and that Jewish immigration overall was a threat to the empire. Over a 30-year period, the Ottoman government repeatedly implemented a series of laws aimed at preventing Jewish immigration to the empire and banning land sales to foreign, and occasionally Ottoman, Jews. In 1908, they reevaluated their strategy, the Zionist movement, that is. In the fall of 1908, uh, they had articulated three main axes from which to operate. One, to secure a role for the Zionist movement within the Ottoman political spectrum, preferably using Ottoman Jews for this effort. Two, to gain government and Jewish support within the empire, for which it would be necessary to narrow the expressed goals of the movement. And three, to promote public relations, the press, on behalf of their goals. The same time, the Zionist movement was struggling with an internal political crisis over the direction of the movement. Political diplomatic, uh, Herzlian Zionism, and active, practical Zionism. In other words, creating facts on the ground in Palestine. Throughout this reevaluation, the prescribed role of Ottoman Jewry in carrying out the Zionist agenda was never clearly defined. On one hand, some Zionist officials argued that the Jews of the empire should be, quote unquote, awakened to help the Zionist movement in its diplomatic efforts. Indeed, the Zionist officials in the Istanbul office met with prominent Ottoman Jews, including the four Jewish members of parliament, important Jewish governmental advisors, and Jewish representatives of organizations and communal institutions. The ZO wanted to gauge the individual's orientation towards Zionism, to enlist friends in the Zionist cause and try to neutralize the potential damage foes could do to the movement. In its appeal to high-ranking Ottoman Jews, the Istanbul office carefully spun the goals of the Zionist movement to be more in line with what it perceived to be within the range of acceptability, Zionism within the boundaries of Ottoman patriotism. In its official communication with the Jewish MP Nassim uh, Masliak and Nissim Russo, Secretary of the Minister of the Interior, the ZO presented its goals as creating a shelter, a cultural center for the Jewish nation in Palestine, promoting their economic, physical, intellectual, and moral rejuvenation. As such, the Zio assured the Ottoman gentlemen that the Zionist movement sought to work within the new Ottoman constitutional parliamentary framework. Ottoman Jews, the Zio assured uh, Masliak and Rousseau, had a notable noble role in the Zionist movement and would thus serve both the Ottoman homeland and the Jewish people. Preempting the detractors, the Zionist officials stated, I think this quote is key. I mean, like, is this sincere? But like this does like give you a sense of like, you know, how uh, uh, much of a spectrum this, this could be. If in certain circles Zionism is still considered as a separatist aspiration that could constitute a danger to the Ottoman Empire, this is a monstrous madness. They are only the confused spirits or the slanderers who disfigure and falsify our idea in such a manner. Zionism is not having to do uh, with separatist tendencies against the integrity of the Ottoman Empire, which correspond by no means to the real interests of our nation. We must reassert the perfect loyalty of our idea and demonstrate that its realization is in harmony with the interests of your beloved homeland. In order to answer any lingering questions about the matter, the president of the ZO, David uh, Wolfson, personally reassured the Ottoman Jewish notables further of Zionism's benign and limited aims. He already had been prepped by Jacobson that the most important thing is the emphasis that we have no separatist aims, no plans for political action in the land. Wolfson then wrote to the Ottoman Jews, I know that in Turkish circles, even the most enlightened, Zionism is known in the form of a movement that wants to found a Jewish state in Palestine with separatist aspirations and as a consequence will constitute a danger to the Ottoman Empire. In my capacity as president of the executive committee of the ZO, I have him completely and officially... That Zionism does not have anything to do with these tendencies, which from our (laughs) point of view, not only are unrealizable, but by no means correspond to the real interests of the Jewish people. Declaring that all political aspirations are completely foreign to us, Wolfson limited the Zionist movement's concrete aims to increasing Jewish immigration to Palestine and repealing the ban on land sales to Jews there. Through these aims, the Zionists would bring about the material, intellectual, moral, and social development which will be good for the new Turkey."
0: So um, they're doing insight rolls, folks. Wow. Yeah, it's unclear. That...
1: Like, I mean, it's possible that some did feel that way. But, you know, she does say, like, um, Wolfson considered the empire's 400,000 to 500,000 Jews entirely irrelevant to the Zionist program. For his part, Wolfson continued to pursue uh, a Herzlian policy, a direct diplomacy with the Ottoman state, meeting personally with Ottoman officials, as Herzl did, which I think we should talk about that meeting. But in -hmm. fact, as public criticism emerged in 1909 over the tensions between Ottomanism and Zionism, the Zionist leader Max Nordau told Ottoman Jews who voiced criticism to stay out of internal Zionist affairs, in effect disenfranchising them from the very movement which sought to speak and act in their name. So
0: there you go. The gaslighting seems to have been uh, a Herzellian innovation to some, or at least something that was uh, tightly embraced of like lying about your foundational intentions whenever it's convenient. I mean, I guess that's just politics, but at the same time, yeah. like...
1: I mean, I do think that like there were some who did see it that way, like who did see like, oh, you know, like, you know, it's not about separatism is about just like you know emigrating like having a place to to rest or whatever you know like a, a i, I think at place. this time you're right yeah. like it,
0: especially for the the actual people that move there um yeah you know and i think even i think they mentioned the split between like the Herzelian, like diplomatic approach and then the the practical the more realist yeah. yeah i think edmund de rothschild was heavily identified with the practical approach of like pouring a ton of resources into these various settlements and that also that, that French organization, the Alliance, uh, Israelite, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, I forget exactly what the other word, was, but that organization and like getting, building up like modern agriculture and like infrastructure and things like that, because yeah, I guess his philosophy was like, you know, as like a mega capitalist was like, you need to change like the material conditions on the ground and sort of build, The economic foundations of kind of like a sort of Israeli economy that I'm pretty sure was in like a lot of cases just sort of like not integrated with the local Palestinian economy and had kind of all of its own supply chains and everything else. I think also like the we sort of brought up like the labor Zionists, right? Who basically it was used.
1: interesting that like the the socialists like the jacobinites of their day <laughs> were like the ones who were like super like diehard like intensely zionist to the point that they were like gonna jump on you if you deviated from like the zionist line like yeah, yeah. you know because yeah. i always
0: thought about you know whenever i'd hear about like in israel like oh the labor party is one of the big parties i just sort of thought about it as like oh okay there's like israelis that are kind of like sock dems or like liberals i guess but then i realized like it it is a very different specific kind of history in like the israeli context of like the labor party grew out of like one of the strains of zionism which i guess is often referred to as labor zionism that was i guess yeah very very militant about like setting up a state in palestine but they had I, i still have to go through probably next time uh we might tackle some of the specific like ideological things of all these different strains but it seemed like whereas like Herzl was like really focused on like high level diplomacy and kind of like negotiating with like powerful people to get a state like they I guess a lot of labor Zionists like wanted to maybe Rothschild felt this way too but that you know the European Jews were you know, they were in all these kind of professions that were like lawyers, like bankers, like accountant, you know, stuff like, or like traders or merchants. But they needed to build up basically kind of like a Jewish, like a tough Jewish proletariat, like in Palestine. And like the way you would sort of harden up like these migrants, uh, these settlers would be to have them go and like move to these kibbutzes and do a lot of like manual labor and then because, I mean, that wasn't that kind of wrapped up in uh, the the broader, you know, what, what they called the Jewish question in the late 1800s of, uh, you know, it really all goes, like, even this Ottoman versus Zionism debate kind of goes, there's a similar debate happening in Europe, right, of like assimilationism versus yeah. Zionism versus, right. uh you know, returning to Palestine or going somewhere else. So I think that, for some of the Zionists, like, they thought the assimilationists were, like, the classes they tended to populate and everything. Like, they didn't have, like, a tough, like, workforce kind of thing. Even yeah. There was there was a large, growing proletarian population in, like, Eastern Europe around the late 1800s, right? That was also one of the impetuses for some people to advocate you know, mm-hmm. sending them to to Palestine was that there's too many uh, Jews to like assimilate into all these societies or something. There's a lot of people freaking out about that, I guess.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that it was a little bit different. Like in the, it was fundamentally different in like a an Ottoman context or particularly in a Palestinian context because uh, what the Ottomanist Jews were, you know, the Jews who just wanted to live like as citizens of the Ottoman Empire were arguing was that by insisting on this thing like for instance like in the uh the book what's it called uh, eretz israel Le lepez juif the land of israel the jewish homeland mm-hmm. uh by jacob as khan you know when that was published and you know uh, finally appeared in the streets of istanbul like that book argued for a jewish homeland and a jew with a jewish army and a jewish police force right And uh, Victor Jacobson, you know, the Zio's representative in the Ottoman capital, worried greatly about the impact the book would have, seeing how it directly contradicted the watered-down version of Zionism that he and his colleagues have been peddling among Ottoman Jews and Ottoman officials. (laughs) So what Jews who did want to live peacefully as, like, Ottoman citizens, like, were uh, upset about, not Victor Jacobson, who I guess was just worried about it undermining his, like, gaslighting campaign, or, like, you know, uh, they were like, well, you know, this is betraying like our fellow citizens like this is basically proposing that we're going to like usurp the government and like impose our rule upon them rather than like have equal yeah. citizenship like, obviously, they're they're going to be upset about that and, like, react badly, and then they're going to... And then it's going to come all... Uh, it's going to come back on all of us. It's blow like,
0: back on all of us, whereas... Yeah, and it's yeah, going to make all...
1: A... Not only all Zionists, but all Jews look bad, and you make us... Tartus yeah, you could imagine
0: if, like, any group tried to do that in America, like, just, you know, sort of annex Florida to, like, there's, like, a movement to... Imagine, yeah, like, imagine there was a mass
1: movement among, like, Somalis to, like, create, like, an independent caliphate in Michigan, and it was, like, incredibly popular, (laughs) like.
0: Yeah, that you would worry that, um. I mean,
1: obviously, I would support that, but it's, (laughs) I mean, it's different, but. You know, you can see how, like, that would obviously, like, cause incredible friction. Not everyone would support that.
0: It it would be naive to assume that nobody's going to get mad about that, especially because, you know, I think the one big difference between maybe the uh, Ottoman context and the European context is that uh, a lot of these European powers uh, had a lot to potentially gain from the establishment of a Jewish state in Palestine and the Ottoman Empire... Given that it already had, you know, that was its territory, uh, only could stand to lose from that occurring. So it was like, even if you're a Jewish person in the Ottoman Empire, like chances are some bad things are going to happen. Like that—that's not just going to be an awesome, like, easy, positive thing if somebody tries to attempt that, because you're talking about, like, armed insurrection, basically. Yeah. And I'm just thinking about, because it's so easy to, like, otherize the Ottoman Empire, and, of course, like, the Young Turk uh, Revolution veered off into some, like, pretty fucked up places. But I think this, like, general... The way you're reading that one Zionist talk, you're like, Jews become Ottomans. Like, there's a lot of uh, optimistic, like, humanitarian, I feel like, uh, sentiment, like... Sort of, you know, early 20th century modern, like, liberal democratic yeah. sentiment of, like, that I feel like is actually not, really not so different from, like, what America on paper is supposed to be. No, like, not at all. In fact, it's freedom very of religion. Similar. Everyone yeah. can have their own community and live the... You want to live your life as a Jew or a Muslim or whatever, you're free yeah. to do that. But we That's all have That's what people were hoping the young yeah, constitution yeah. And so, would be when you yeah. talk about like you know america's best friends the zionists like they were against like the more uh if you want to say like american ideal option than you know then the oh the yeah ottoman than the ottoman jews who didn't want all that to go down you no know, yeah thought that, that might be a disaster so again it's like somehow history gets twisted into like you know, it's like uh, Herzl's vision of, like, the Israeli cowboys, like, riding up on the sunset, like, looking like they're in, you know, Arizona or something. But in reality, these people are much more extreme and really... Yes. I mean, they're in a certain way, they're kind of, you know, like, certain movements in the 20th century, like, they're hyper-modern, but also, like, aggressively against, like, the actual values that, like, modernity is supposed to bring. I mean, I think of, like, uh, Nazi Germany is one example of that. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. they, they want to, like, embrace, like, the technology, the Promethean technology of the future, but they also want to be, like, Bronze Age perverts, and, like, subdue their enemies, and, like, hear the lamentations of their women, and, like, <laughs> get on some, like, sicko-dominating shit. Like, you know Nietzsche and Ubermensch, and like Zion, this way, the Herzelian wing of Zionism certainly is like a little bit closer to that than it is to even the most idealized vision of like Thomas Jefferson and like James Madison got together. Oh, and like definitely a it is. I like mean, where, maybe or, not or Abraham Lincoln. You know, like or you well, know.
1: I think the young Turk vision of, like, an Ottoman, like, a a reconstituted Ottoman empire that is, like, a, uh, like, Republican in some way or Democratic and has, like, you know, and liberal, that is very similar to, like, an American idea. And it actually, what happened, uh, ultimately can also be compared to what happens in America where certainly Mass there's also an cleansing. Yeah, there's certainly also an idea of America that is like okay, well yeah, like we have these, like, lofty ideals, but really, you know, and this persists at a stay, like, this country is supposed to be ru- run by white people. And, like, if that is jeopardized, then, like, that can't happen, you know? Like that, So, like, you know, we can't allow that to be... Je- that's still an idea in American politics, even though it's, like, a betrayal of, like, the ideas of it. So in the same way that, like, there's a lot of optimism and a lot of, like, yeah, like, lofty ideas and belief and, uh, and the ideals of, of this revolution... And that ultimately kind of gets like betrayed by like the worst impulses of the Young Turks uh, themselves. Turkish, Turkish yeah, Turkish chauvinism. nationalism. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Definitely, like you can see how it's definitely a better ideal than on paper. Like in terms of like taking liberalism by its own standards, by the standards of of liberalism, you know, the liberal standards that we're trying to apply. Like, that definitely is... And that's what the argument that the uh, Ottoman Jews made, or the anti-Zionist Ottoman Jews made, that, like, why can't we just be equal with... Why can't we just be like the Arabs, be like the Armenians, you know? Like, we can just be, you know, our our own people who have our own identity. Like, it doesn't mean Mm -hmm. we're not going to be Jews anymore, but... You know, we don't have to have this sort of separatist thing, where yeah,
0: like well, that that also from a few things I had read seemed like a particular I don't know fixation or like sticking point with a lot of the the sort of Herzl wing of like european zionists was they viewed assimilation as basically jewish genocide like like yeah. the same way people talk about like white genocide like it's yeah. like basically that there's not going to be jewish people anymore if they do what they're doing in like france and germany where everybody totally kind of integrates which those people would say well you know it's kind of the the safer easier thing to do is just integrate with like the dominant society, the majority in the society you're living in. But then they would argue back that, well, then you have to basically abandon your your Jewish identity in order to be accepted, which means you're essentially exterminating Jewish culture. And I think they saw that a lot of, like, I think German and French Jews were, like, you know, not particularly... Uh, that religious, you know, and stuff. And so there was a lot of anxiety. And, you know, maybe I think that's probably, you know, not t- completely unfounded, the aspect of like, if a group has to 100%, you know, assimilate, then yeah, like their, cult, their previous culture will kind of get watered down and maybe... Sort of drift away. I mean,
1: Um, like, but it didn't for like 2,000 years. That's the thing, though.
0: It's like you've been, you've done a great job so far. Like, you've been around for over 2,000 years and like you still have your traditions. So I could see how that also could be jumped upon like maybe they played that up like more than the threat at like surely there might be a middle way of like preserving that's what like the cultural zionists would argue is that you need to rejuvenate jewish like educational and cultural religious institutions in the places where people are already living and lead to like a, a, a kind of like a great awakening a reawakening of like jewish consciousness and stuff like that and that's kind of the priority and then the other people were like no 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 we have to like literally build a state in palestine that is the only yeah, way get or else... rid of
1: everyone else and like you know have our own army and police and like rule it's the only yeah like it's yeah uh...
0: and maybe they did view like maybe they did kind of literally view like assimilation is extermination which made them think that well then again considering the 1930s we're not there yet but they didn't actually seem that concerned about genocide let's put it that way like surprisingly not that concerned in some of the moves that the wzo were making around that time Um, i mean it was very like there's a lot of cold pragmatic stuff kind of going on and uh but but i think it's justified today like today something like that like i think with the reality of the holocaust like it hits different to say like you know jews could be exterminated like yeah, anywhere which is around why, the world. Because you know, now we think of the, the Holocaust, we're like, oh, yeah, yeah. That, that's true. But like before, you know, the early 20th century, it wasn't so much that, oh, we're all going to get killed one day by the Germans or something like that. It was like, are we going to remain being kind of marginalized citizens or. Are we going to assimilate and kind of loo- like, is there a way to kind of like live peacefully with everybody, but also retain our culture? And it hadn't, not to say that there wasn't, I mean, I think in like the Russian Empire, there are a lot of pogroms. There was definitely like, yeah, and that was part of the reason,
1: yeah, why it's interesting because like the Ottoman Empire often viewed like the Jews in Palestine as being like a possible like Russian influence but like a lot of them actually were fleeing like the the pogroms like in Russia. I mean yeah, like another element of, like the thing is like that yeah, the even immigrating to Palestine, like immigrating to the Ottoman Empire like, seeking Ottoman citizenship, like even if there were these same like mass waves of immigration, I don't think that mass waves of immigration like especially like people like Jews who do f- obviously face extermination in Europe, that's to me not bad. Like I don't think that that element is bad. Like as long Absolutely. as that, like, that's it doesn't good disenfranchise point to, like to, I wouldn't oppose like having
0: some Jewish people especially if they're fleeing violent oppression in Europe like move to Palestine and live there is not yeah. exactly it's not the same thing as the Zionist project like because we're still talking I mean I I think in terms of scale like even through the late 1800s where you do have these settlements being built up and more people are moving in I think there's still single digits in the population. I mean, maybe it goes from four to six and then 8%. And then I forget where the immigration actually comes much later. And even some of that, like it's really not until I would say until the British mandate period. When the mass migration takes on a kind of different, a more conscious like we're gonna well yeah
1: because it was the british plan to basically pass the baton to a jewish state pretty much
0: yeah as we'll get into like it was a plot from the jump basically um, yeah and yeah yeah
1: yeah, and i think i think like that's the thing like you know the ottoman anxiety like you know uh, the zionist argument would be like well you know the ottomans like were uh unwelcoming or something you know or they were resistant to zionism and like ended up taking this form like that's not a good argument. That's not true. However, it is also a different situation, like, from many other ones, because it was a well-known fact that everyone was aware of, that, like, the usage of, like, supporting, like, uh, you know, uh, quote-unquote oppressed minorities in the Ottoman Empire was, like, a wedge that the different great powers used to try to undermine the Ottoman Empire from within. 100%. Like, that was, you know, and so that's the reason why like this was That's why
0: there was opposition like a lot that's, of yeah uh, that's to a large degree that's why there was early kind of opposition though it wasn't you know ever i don't think it really wasn't on the level of like they got their scimitars out and like we're gonna chop no. off the head of any person no it wasn't like no that. it w- and that's really why
1: it, there was like that's why there was immigration there like you know that's i mean it's like like that's Because and historically that was the case that like Jews did flee Europe to go to the Ottoman Empire because like even though like it wasn't a paradise necessarily like there were definitely like uh, especially in this period there were like outbreaks of like you know intercommunal violence and things like that there you know were bad things that happened. However, like compared to Europe, like the like Muslim tolerance like is a real historical phenomenon. It, it does exist. It's you know acknowledged that it's like you know compared to uh, Christendom, it certainly was a thing, and yeah, and so that's I think part of the reason why this happened. But like the need, basically the the actual plan to like even though as we've talked about, the Ottoman Empire did in a way. In its attempt in its you know uh, attempts to realize itself as like a, a European power and to join the European Concert of Nations, it did start to take on sort of an internally colonial aspect in some in some respects. but also it was definitely the target of European imperialism and colonialism. Certainly in the case of Theodore Herzl, it was self-consciously an effort to participate in that.
0: Oh yeah, like, I mean they say it like in their yeah. own writings, basically. I mean, yeah. and then they don't say it like in very public pronunciations, but like in you know in private or whatever, they freely admit that like that's that is their aim, that's what they're here to do, and it's a good thing for the most part because you know for Theodore Herzl especially, I guess he's almost notorious for how seldom he ever even mentions people that are living in palestine like he is almost the pioneer of the like what what palestinians kind of approach that you still see zionists like low-key kind of using today as a justification it's like well you know they're just arabs like they belong to the other countries or there wasn't anybody there like you know basically just like kind of always denying their existence basically i mean it's like you know people use the word erasure but like this is a tactical very disciplined tactical erasure of like never mentioning you know anybody that's living there Up, uh, Herzl, where he's talking to the Sultan. There he is. <laughs> Here it is. All right, yeah. This is talking about there's this article, um, by Khalidi, uh, about the Jewish Ottoman Land Company, which was, yeah. I mean, next time, I think maybe we'll, you know, focus on, uh, the specific history of like these, like, Zionist kind of organizations, or mainly like Herzl's and like the settlements that. Uh, Rothschild was founding. But yeah, he's talking about in this uh, essay, you know, uh, Theodor Herzl's like one visit to Palestine in his lifetime uh, that was mostly preoccupied with him frantically trying to secure a meeting with uh, Kaiser Wilhelm, who was also visiting. Yeah, it does say here that his delegation spent the 27th of October visiting the neighboring Jewish agricultural school at Mikvah Israel and the two colonies of Rishon-le-Zion and (laughs) Rehavat, a group of, quote, daring Zionist colonists on horseback who greeted him at the latter, reminded him of, quote, the far west cowboys of the American plains, bringing tears to his eyes. Uh, So, yeah, I mean, that's one uh, little similarity of the uh, Manifest Destinies at play. But let's see. Yeah, it says here, you know, Herzl's entries on his Palestine visit cover some 26 pages in the English edition of his book. What is most relevant to us in these pages are Herzl's reactions to the existence of Palestinians in the country. And what were those reactions? The answer is that there were none. Having landed in Jaffa, the main port of the country, did he evince any interest in its buildings and inhabitants? None at all. What he saw was, quote, Poverty and misery and heat in gay colors. Confusion in the streets, at the hotel, not a carriage to be had. I was already on horse to ride to Rashan. Crossing the main orange belt between Jaffa and Mikveh Israel, did he wonder who planted these groves? He did not. What he <laughs> noticed was, quote, a countryside neglected in Arab fashion, thick dust on the roads, a bit of greenery. On his visits to the colonies near Mikvah, a doctor had told him about the prevalence of fever. He immediately thought of the Arabs, quote, Such Arabs as are immune to the fever might be used for the work of drainage. Oh, um, God. Uh, sus. Like, what the fuck? Okay, yeah. They're they are they love that. They love... Genetically Just like immune Daniel f- Pinchback. Yeah. Like He's got to use them as workers. The permaculture. Yeah. yeah. That idea has persisted. Um, awaiting yeah. the Kaiser's cavalcade at Mikva, he did notice, quote, a mixed multitude of Arab beggars, womenfolk, children lining the highway. These are his only direct or indirect references to the Palestinians before entering Jerusalem. God. Okay, so in... In Jerusalem, that part, there is not one single mention of Palestinians, but in his October 29th entry, he notes, the streets were crowded with groups of Jews strolling in the moonlight. Otherwise, when he looks out of his hotel window that afternoon, he sees the Kaiser pass through the triumphal arches. (laughs) On the way to the imperial tent, yeah, for the audience, a few Jews in the streets looked up as we passed. He also notices, quote, wild ducks flying overhead, Uh, And, and like, no Arabs. Uh, What about the visual (laughs) impact of Jerusalem? Jerusalem, by moon dust, with its grand outlines, made a powerful impression on me. Magnificent, the silhouette of the fortress of Zion, the citadel of David. He seems unaware that the fortress-slash-citadel is a Muslim structure... And and does he notice the Ottoman walls and gates? Not confessedly. In the October 31st entry, quote, from the gallery of an ancient synagogue, we enjoyed a view of the temple area, the Mount of Olives, and the whole storied landscape in the morning sunshine. Does he have a word to say about the majesty of the Dome of the Rock and Al-Aqsa Mosque? He does not. On the way to Matzah and back, does he notice the oceans of terraced olive groves to the north and south? Not at all. We probably get an inkling of what Herzl might have thought of the Palestinians from his observations about Sultan Abdul Hamid, whose 600-year-old dynasty had unconditionally given refuge for over four centuries to the people Herzl aspired to lead and his entourage. Having just had an audience with the Sultan, who had throughout treated him graciously, Herzl wrote in his entry of May 21st, 1901, and this this part's wild, he says, I can only compare this anonymous band of bums to a tangle of venomous snakes. The weakest, sickest, and least noxious snake wears a little crown. But this army of snakes has such a peculiar structure that it looks as though its crowned head were the one that bit and poisoned everything. Continuing about Abdul Hamid's person, he says, quote, I can still see him before me this sultan of the declining robber empire, small, shabby, with his badly dyed beard, the hooked, nose of a pun- of a, the hooked nose of a punchinello, the long yellow teeth with a big gap on the upper right, the fez pulled low over his probably bald head, the prominent ears, quote, serving as pants protector, as I used to say about such fez wearers to my friend's amusement, that is, to keep the fez from slipping down onto the pants. Okay, wow, hilarious. And yet, yeah. in his May 17th entry, just before his audience, Herzl had been rehearsing in front of a mirror, quote, que je Will his majesty <laughs> permit me to speak plainly, frankly, seriously? During the audience, he had told the sultan that he was devoted to him because he was good to the Jews. Jews all over the world are grateful for this, and I, in particular was ready to render him any service, great services. The contrast between Herzl's impressions of the sultan and his entourage and those of the kaiser and his is too striking to be merely coincidental. It probably tells as much about Herzl himself and his feelings about the nationalities they represent as about the individuals themselves. Thus, on his way to the audience with the kaiser in Istanbul, quote, I went up the stairs rather calmly. At the top there stood, most splendidly, the aide-de-camp on duty, a gentleman of Prussian elegance who watched my ascent, assent with a quizzical expression. Still, he seemed to be satisfied with my coat, the crease of my trousers, and my patent leather shoes. <laughs> Having entered the audience chamber, the Kaiser, quote, looked at me grandly with his great sea-blue eyes. He has truly uh, all ca- uh, capitalized imperial eyes, I have never seen such eyes. A remarkable, bold, inquisitive soul shows in them. I kept my gaze on his fine, frank, genial, and yet bold eyes, which fairly bewitched me. He looks at you squarely and strongly, the Kaiser, and then, and when a remark appeals to him, his magnificent eyes say, I got you. <laughs> There are innumerable portraits of him. These are all like have dot dots in between them, too. It's like very, yeah, alive. there are innumerable portraits of him. But because this dot 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 glance <laughs> original, powerful flash cannot be painted. People don't know what his eyes are like.
1: His like okay. love for the Kaiser Whoa, is like, man, like literal
0: love for the Kaiser. Like, yeah, bro. Chill out. I got you. <laughs> His magnificent eyes, they bewitched me. Uh, So, yeah, um, final paragraph here. Long after Herzl had despaired of securing a charter from the Sultan and had turned to other capitals, like London, for charters in the Sinai and East Africa, he kept his sights on Istanbul. In May 1904, in the penultimate entry of his diaries, he addresses a memorandum to a senior Austrian foreign ministry official In this note, he solicits solicits the participation of the Austrian government in an international effort to persuade Turkey to grant a charter very much along the lines of the JOLC. He adds a detail absent in the JOLC version examined above. He envisages, quote, a settlement area in Palestine and the vicinity large enough for 5 to 6 million Jews.
1: Yes. Uh, The J-O-L-C, by the way, was like quite a like sweeping. Technically, yeah, this would be not like a totally independent Jewish state per se, like on paper, but the like powers were immense. Like basically it had the power to build and operate railroads, construct canals, build harbors and shipyards and a merchant fleet. In general, the JOLC may use the rivers and body of water, which are on company territory industrially, and utilize their resources. Uh, It would assume all responsibility for education, construction, and maintenance of schools and institutions of higher learning, in which people must be educated not only in their national language and history and religion, but also in patriotism in order to make them reliable Ottoman citizens. Mm. Three, to levy taxes and tariffs and to reform taxation and make it more efficient— And for to assume responsibility for the personal security and the property of the inhabitants, and for this purpose to pay and equip its own civil servants and police. Right. It Mm -hmm. also wanted to create the Imperial Ottoman Syrian Palestinian Land or Navy Division, uh, basically the IDF. Yeah. Pretty much he proposed the the IDF, but like it wasn't, like they got more than they wanted ultimately. But he got more than he wanted, ultimately, uh, even though, you know, he wasn't uh, there at the time. Yeah. I
0: think, like, he consciously proposed it after, like, the British East India Company, right? Kind of yeah. a, that kind of model. The exactly. Jewish Ottoman yeah. company was going to be this corporate chartered thing. Yes, that... exactly.
1: Mm-hmm. The sultan, obviously, yeah, turned it down. It's interesting to read his correspondence with his chamberlain, Izzat al-Abed, a Syrian Arab, Let me see if I can find like what's the best part to clearly Istanbul had been doing its homework on Zionism is that now said I shall give it to you straight and proceeded to outline his government's position. The empire would be open to Jewish refugees from all countries. The immigrants would renounce their previous nationality and would be subject to Ottoman law, including military service. They could establish themselves in any of our providence except at first Palestine. In return, Herzl would form a syndicate for the consolidation of the public debt and assume a concession for the exploitation of all mines, already discovered and yet to be discovered, including gold, silver, coal, as well as oil wells. The company in charge of this concession would be composed of a board entirely of Jews and Muslims. Uh, Herzl took all this in stride, assuming that this was only the first offer and they would be open to bargaining. He wanted his imperial majesty to be assured that he could count on my sincere and determined devotion. Before they parted, Izette accepted a snuffbox as a gift from Herzl. He said he was crazy about snuffboxes and asked him for a reply in the form of a memorandum the following day. Herzl seems to have spent most of 16 February composing the reply. He accepted in principle the mission of establishing an Ottoman company to exploit all the mines. The details would have to be decided later. The other matter were his imperial majesty's willingness to extend paternal protection to the persecuted Jews of the whole world to receive them as Turkish subjects on the condition that they do not establish themselves in large numbers in a predetermined place. In return for this, his imperial majesty would desire to see a Jewish syndicate formed for the consolidation of the debt. In this form, the latter proposal was... Difficult of realization. Publicity was needed for the success of the proposal, but if restrictions were added to the generously intended welcome, the ensuing publicity would have a bad effect, at least a dubious one. Besides, it was not the poor colonists who were going to supply the capital. Herzl now came to his main point. It is a matter then of finding a link between Jewish colonization and the execution of the consolidation of the debt. This link, in my very humble opinion, can be found only in a general concession for the formation of a great Ottoman Jewish company for colonization. (laughs) Yes. So he constantly like brought it back to this point. Yeah.
0: This reminds me a little bit of uh, when didn't Netanyahu like briefly offer to Egypt that if they just let all the Palestinians like into the Sinai Peninsula that he'd like hook it up with the IMF somehow and like forgive a bunch of their debt.
1: Yeah. I mean, he basically promised the same thing where like he was going to like hook it up. And, but weirdly, like he was upset about this because he offered them like to go to Mesopotamia, Syria, Anatolia, anywhere. With the sl- exception of Palestine, yeah, yeah. and then he well, was that's like, That's interesting,
0: no. too, is, like, yeah, if you want to move here and be citizens and then, like, become, you know, like, have full yeah. rights, and, like, you could like, accept. Because I think he knew by this point that there were very specific designs and aspirations to... I, I mean, it's an indication that the Ottoman Empire was not hostile to, like, having more Jewish citizens, but... No, having, especially
1: not in exchange for, I guess, Theodore Herzl was going to form, like, a great Turkish bank that would, like... Yeah. Organize credit in all ottoman countries like and they yeah, get forgive a bunch of their debt promise. Like, yeah uh, hey, um, yeah that's a, yeah. Seems like a
0: fair deal but th- he seems quite aware that Herzl might be using this to like get his foot in the door to further establish a kind of future you know aspirational future like jewish state that would want to uh secede you know from ottoman rule which is like exactly what Herzl wanted it to. Um.
1: I almost wonder if they were like testing him with this meeting to like feel him out because there's also this like you know weird exchange where he is also meeting with uh, Istalibet and he says um, he's talking to him about the f- formation of the Ottoman Bank. Presently, Izzet again appeared and repeated the sultan's earlier propositions, with Herzl rejected just as flatly. I said I could use immigration only without any restriction or not at all. Izzet relayed a message from the sultan to the effect that he could not grant me unlimited immigration under the administration of my land company, even if he wanted to. He would not only not win the support of the majority of his people, but not even of the minority. True. It was left to Izzet to remind Izzet that the error of belief, uh, the error of the belief that an absolute monarch could do whatever he wanted. Is it now changed over to a confidential tone and gave Herzl advice as a friend. The Jews should enter the country as financiers and make friends. They should attend to the mining business and after that to the banking business. And finally, we would see what could be done for your colonization request. Herzl should leave, as he said he would, the following day, create the syndicate, earmark a sum of money uh, to be deposited but kept at Herzl's disposal as a security, and then the Ferman decree would be forthcoming for the mine concession, for example." Herzl divined deep ulterior motives in these words and believed that he and Izzet had reached a new level of mutual understanding. When Izzet sprang on him, the government needs a million pounds now. Can you get it for us? <laughs> Aha, the Hijaz Railroad, thought Herzl to himself. Yes, he promptly said, give me unrestricted colonization you will have a million in very short order. But Izzet dismisses this as impossible at the moment. Finally, never mind about his gall, Herzl proposed that although he could not agree to the Ottoman government restricting immigration, why could not the Ottoman Jewish company itself undertake not to admit more than a certain number of colonists? But Izzet wanted to know how many, for instance, Uh, which Herzl replied that he had not, uh, he hadn't given the matter enough thought. The idea had just popped into his mind.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's a certain number.
1: Yeah, Yeah, just eh the whole notion has just of this has just popped in my mind. I'm not obsessed with it. It's not like my one like driving passion in life. <laughs> I'm not like monomaniacally devoted to it at like the expense
0: of all else. We should probably uh, pause yeah. there now, but you know, I think we have, we have some further digging to do on uh, our, our boy Herzl. I really want to figure out, you know, cause now I'm more familiar with like his deeds and his, uh, his words and, uh, a little more about his philosophy, but you know, i want to know kind of where this dude came from. Also, you know, I think we're we're almost up at the one of the big turning points, which is World War One. Which I World feel like War also One is
1: gonna be crazy. Yeah, um, World War One.
0: A lot of crazy shit happens. A lot of it's like not particularly well known or like not properly put into context. And of course, like the end result of it is th- that's often where a lot of like the history starts when people are doing an overview it was like the british mandate of palestine yeah but you know I, I i've i watched a few things and i read a few things and i can already tell like it is so undersold how fucking sus the british mandate of palestine it was, was unbelievably like, sus it was, yeah
1: just reading some of the documents just reading the Balfour declaration i feel like it's something we should do and like some of these other like, what
0: one sentence it can uh, multitudes yeah there's a right? document, I believe. Oh, okay, there's a um, whole document. I guess the summary yeah. of it was, uh, yeah. but the way that that paved the ground for the actual establishment of Israel, and in fact, like in a way, is the state of Israel. Like the the infrastructure of the colonial government was essential or the mandate government was essentially handed over. But that is a very long entangled story, and we also have to get through, you know, obviously the other like major foundational kind of historical event uh world war ii but even more importantly like the years before world war ii because uh that's when we i think the closer we get to present day history i feel like the more uh parapolitical like overtly parapolitical
1: this entire
0: uh, grand narrative is going to be but i know there's a book that i i read a little part of but I think it is called Zionism in the Age of Dictators by Lenny Brenner. I just read one chapter from that, which is about the World Zionist Organization in like the early 1930s and sort of uh, their real politique, if you will. But no, but World War One, there's a ton to get to. And, you know, Zionism itself, I guess we have to like also define. I think we've given some good examples uh, today of what they said they believed in you know the the hertzelian you know wing at least and also of course like increasingly they're intertwining especially with the british government around like the turn of the century definitely into world war one because i mean the brits really are you know we talked a little bit about the americans but the americans have not really stepped on the stage yet but it is really the british that become like the ultimate best friend of the zionist movement and uh, really, like, essential partner in its creation. Whereas, like, I always was used to hearing that, like, the British just, like, didn't want to deal with Palestine anymore, so they left. And then, like, the UN voted to create Israel. And then Arabs attacked yeah. Israel. And then they had to take the land. Like, that's kind of the normal narrative. But, my God, they're... The dirty business. Dare I say uh, terrorism. There's just so much. There's so much to, uh, to cover. But... I don't yeah. know any Pico any... would be oh, good Yeah of to, course Sykes Pico Yeah I just um, feel like
1: some of these like documents themselves like some of these statements like just need to like cut, be like read because they're really
0: the more you read this shit the more just like <laughs> yeah. glaringly obvious a lot of things become and like like we said like people 100 150 years ago uh often you know they didn't have the same uh, cancel culture that they have today so people really just said what they thought yeah you know (laughs) Um, they would really speak uh bluntly about um yeah not that
1: we yeah i mean i guess you're being facetious but you know i'm being facetious yeah yeah Um, yeah i mean
0: people say gross obvious shit nowadays but you know, it's like when we like the, the way 19th yeah compared to like between the what way we historians expect today. Talk about it and, yeah,
1: yes, yeah, true. What we expect today, like when people say things, yeah, 19th century people are just like really upfront about it, uh, and yeah, there isn't a um, I guess there's no taboo against being racist or like culturally chauvinist. So it's they so just, normalized. Like, are, yeah, straight up come out with it. Yeah,
0: even you know woke woke lords like uh, Mark Twain, you know, were stepping in it to put it mildly but yeah so i mean that means there's there is the the close you know the further we get into the modern era the more receipts there are because this is not exactly it's not exactly a super ambiguous case though um it is very you know complex so i think we want to lay it yeah. out in a uh, winding discursive way that slightly makes sense but uh yeah so far you know i think it, it's pretty clear like they're yeah, the the, uh, the imperial entries. No, I'm pretty are pleased with what
1: we've covered so far. Yeah, and I imagine we'll have a good angle on what's to come as well.
0: I think we um, definitely put to rest that there were, in fact, uh, people uh, there. Yeah, we've established <laughs> there were people there. Yeah, doing stuff. It was not just a a dusty haunted graveyard, yes. like Mark Twain, or you know, an ironic tourist attraction. It's a real place with real people and a thriving soap industry. So don't let anybody tell you otherwise we'll be back soon to continue the uh the grand narrative but until that time dear listeners stay vigilant Cheers.